Good morning, Rethink Church. We are so glad to have you guys here this morning. I have a few announcements for you guys. The first is if you are new or visiting with us, we would love to connect with you at guest services after the service. Um, out in our One Cup Cafe area, there's a little guest service station, and we have a gift for you guys for being here, and we'd love to answer any questions you guys might have. Um, next up, we've got a lot of really exciting things coming up. Um, basically, every weekend there's something for a while. So uh, today, after church, we are going to have a meeting about camp for parents that are sending their teenagers to camp. So if you fall in that category, make sure to stick around for that meeting after the service today. Um, next week is Father's Day. The week after that is June 25th, and we are going to be having kind of a church town hall meeting. So if you call Rethink Church your home, um, it's just a time. It'll be after the service around noon. Um, we're going to just get together and reflect on what God's done through the church in the last year and where we're headed in the upcoming year. So um, mark your calendars for that. And then on July 2nd, instead of having a normal church service, we're going to be having a cookout um, with food and games. It'll just be a fun time to get to know each other better and spend time together as a church family. So um, we're looking forward to all those things. Uh, so mark your calendars for all of those different things each week. Um, and we're glad you guys could join us again this week. And thank you guys so much, those who give to the vision and mission of Rethink Church and make what we do here, um, not just on Sunday mornings, but throughout the week, making that possible. Um, here at Rethink Church, there's two ways you can give. You can give online at rethinkchurch.cc, or there's the, if you want to give in person, we have that black box by the door. Um, we're glad you guys could join us this morning. Uh, lean in as Mark comes up to share our sermon this morning. I'm reading from Mark chapter 3, starting with verse 1. Another time, Jesus went into the synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, stand up in front of everyone. Then Jesus asked them, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they remained silent. He looked around in anger at them and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was completely restored. Then the Pharisees went out and they began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake and a large crowd from Galilee followed. When they heard about all he was doing, many people came to him from Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, and the regions across the Jordan and around Tyre and Sidon. Because of the crowd, he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him to keep the people from crowding him. For he had healed many, so that those with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. Whenever the impure spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. But he gave them strict orders not to tell others about him. All right. Well, hey, my name is Mark. I'm the pastor of our church. And we are now in a new chapter of Mark, which, like, if you're looking at Matthew's timeline, we're, like, flying through this book. So, 
And there's a reason for it. So while it may have taken us like almost two and a half years to get through Matthew, probably not through Mark that way. So, uh, but Mark chapter three, that's where uh, Kim just read for us. And uh, when you guys sat down, you should have gotten one of these sheets. You can just hold on to it towards the end. How about that? Okay. So a couple things I want to bring up and just kind of mention and point out to us. Uh, So this event takes place in Capernaum and it happens on a very particular day, the Sabbath, right? And so I just want to make sure we understand the Sabbath uh, in a sense of like what it is or like why we have it. And so for us, when we think about the Sabbath, one thing that we want to think through is it's not something we have to earn. The Sabbath is part of our identity. So think about the order of creation. If you want to go through Genesis chapters 1 and 2, what do we see? Genesis, or sorry, uh, explains to us that God created humanity on day 6. On day 7, we rested because we were really tired after being born or created, right? And then on day 8, we get to work. And Adam had a huge job, name all the animals, right? And so that was that part of that process and all this. So when we think about Sabbath, it's not a, it's not a thing that we just have to like figure out how to work and then we get to earn it, right? Some of us, we probably think through that. And you probably have a job or something where there's just never enough things, like you'll never have everything done. There's always going to be one more thing. And if you want to live in that world, enjoy it. But you'll probably end up burning out, right? But if you have the mindset that I get to actually have Sabbath and then I work from the strength of the Sabbath, that's the, uh, that's the God-like understanding of what the Sabbath really looks like and that rhythm. And so if you want to just evaluate your life, we talked about this last week, that your, the, crea- the, the system you live your life by is perfectly producing the results that you want. Unless you want something different, then you probably should change your system. So if you want to keep working and try to earn your Sabbath, enjoy. You'll burn yourself out. You'll probably be on some meds. And then eventually you're going to wake up somewhere down the road and saying, what did I actually accomplish in my life? right? Or you can change it and say, okay, I'm going to Sabbath, and then I'm going to work. Now, we also have this flip side, and you've probably seen this, and every generation says about the younger generation, it's not a generational thing. But like, it just isn't, right? Those lazy kids, they don't want to work, and all this other stuff. The process that we have to think through is, are you actually putting enough six six days of work, right? Sometimes you actually have to do a job, Showing up on time, all that kind of stuff. There's that process. So there's this tension that you have to work through. So this is the, the concept that we're going to work through when it comes to this, this passage. How people have interacted with the Sabbath is a very different way of life. I grew up in the time when the Sabbath wasn't as holy. Grocery stores were starting to open up, right? Diners may have stayed open like a little bit later. Maybe they didn't open up in the morning so you can go to church. <clears throat> that was the assumed idea, though, and all that. I remember uh, growing up, I kind of hated Sundays. It was the day I had to go visit my dad every week. And so, and his idea of visitation was we had a meal together, and then we watched a rated R movie, because my mom wouldn't let us watch rated R movies, but my dad would, and it was a way that he could, like, you should like spending time with me. And I was like, I'm really bored. And on a, sun, like a day like today, I was like, that's fine, watching a movie on a rainy day, not a big deal, Right? I also could just go out and just get in a lot of trouble and explore his barns and stuff like that. And that's what I would end up doing. So when it comes to the Sabbath, we have different, probably within this room, we have four or five generations of ideas of what the Sabbath was. Like growing up, for some of our older people, they understand that everything shut down. If you wanted milk and you ran out on Saturday night, 
You waited till Monday morning. That was not that, that long ago in our, in our culture, right? And then we have also have the younger people who are like, Sabbath, what's that? What do you mean shut down on Sunday, right? And then just recently here in Indiana, now you can finally buy liquor on Sunday, right? Like that was a, a new thing. So that was the idea. Like there's, there's certain ideas in the, like ingrained in our, in our understanding of what the Sabbath is. The Egyptians had a 10-day work week. They had no concept about it. The Romans, they just didn't care. They're just like, we're going to keep working our slaves into the ground. It wasn't until, uh, if you look at uh, a guy named, as he literally just slipped my mind, um, the emperor in third century, who was a Christian, uh, if you know your church history, uh, Constantine, there you go. He held the Nicene Council, and after that, they're like, hey, by the way, we should have a Sabbath. And he, like, he's from the, from, as an emperor of the Roman Empire, debated and did all this theology, all this other stuff, left that council, thought his part of his family members were jockeying for his position, so then he had them murdered. Think about this, like how great of a mixture of bag of potential that he has. He like leads the Nicene Council, establishes the Sabbath and the rhythm of the Western world, but then he thought somebody was going to jockey for his position, he got really threatened, so he had them murdered. Humans, aren't we all the same way? Don't we have potential doing great and doing harm all in the same breath? This is, like, we look at history, like, how can you do that? You could do the same thing, right? How many times have you flipped somebody off on your way to church because they cut you off? Probably didn't actually physically do it, but you told them they were number one in your mind, right? We all can do this. We have the potential of doing harm and doing good all in the same area. And this Sabbath is one of those things we're just like a gray area. And I don't care how you break it down. The, like how you and I interpret the Sabbath is going to be a different way. So in the scriptures, in the Hebrew scriptures, the Sabbath was kind of left vague. Don't, don't do any work. But what does work look like? What is work? What isn't work? That's always been debated in all this. And so think about like how, how much work was it for Jesus to have the guy stand up in the, in the synagogue? probably not a whole lot of work, right? And then how much work would he say, extend your hand? Now, Luke tells us that it was his right hand. This is important for us. We have, we have a clean hand and an unclean hand. So you eat with your right hand. You do all the other things with your right, like work and all that. But then you do the unclean parts of your life with your left hand. So if his right hand is shriveled and hurt and crimping and all that, he can't actually go and have a meal with somebody. There's no way he's going to actually eat with his left hand in a, in a public setting. Or he's going to rely on somebody to feed him. He also can't work because his hand is shriveled now and all this. So here he is, and Jesus sees him, and he says, hey, stand up. Now, how many of you guys have ever been to a church where if you're new, they have you stand up? It's terrifying. I hate that stuff. I'm never going to do that because I don't understand the point. But if you've ever been there, we are interviewing at a church for a youth pastor, and they did this, and I was like, I'm done. Like, so we went out for the interview. I ordered the most expensive steak on the menu. I said, you guys are paying for it. Uh, I'm not going to come to this church, like all that. Like, it was a great meal, but it was a great like, an indicator of like, the, I would hate this church, you would hate me, and all that. So why not just get the best steak possible? So part of that process, and so in Jesus' day, Observing the Sabbath was a very Jewish thing to do. 
It was like nationalistic pride to say, I observe the Sabbath, right? Gentiles, the Romans, they didn't observe the Sabbath. They thought it was stupid that you would take a day off. Because if you take a day off, how are you producing any food? How are you producing any money? What if somebody attacks you and all that kind of stuff? So you just never took a day off. The Jewish people, however, they did this. And the people who observed this the most strict, the strictest way was a group called the Pharisees. The Pharisees had the idea that we could hold on to our old traditional values and bring back the good old days. The good old days being a thousand years before Jesus' time. David and Solomon and all that. That's when they ruled themselves. That's when everybody like, around them kind of feared them in a sense because you wouldn't want to mess with King David. He'll lead an army and he'll kill you and all that. Like, that was kind of like, oh, we don't want to do that, right? <clears throat> Solomon becomes a, an arms dealer, basically the, uh, the son after David and all that. And so the Pharisees, they're not a government-sanctioned group. They're more of a civil rights activist group. And they would raise money up to build synagogues. The synagogue wasn't an official building yet in the Jewish culture. That'll actually be put into place officially uh, after 70 AD when the Romans come in and destroy the temple. So they have all these private raised uh, synagogues around them. This, the, the Pharisees are kind of like this civil rights movement group as well. And they're probably, their saying would have been something like, let's make Israel great again. And that gives you a mindset of where they're at, right? So they are very traditionally speaking. They don't want immigrants. They don't want refugees. They don't want anyone coming in and messing with their, their way of life. The problem is they're being ruled by Rome. And they have no control of the, the, the economic system. They have no control over anything like that. But they can just look at it and say, but the good old days are right there. We can remember it like we, we, we know about them, and we can see the, evid the evidence of it. But they can't live it out and stuff like that. Like they're watching their, their own nation just kind of slip away from their, their own grasp. And then you have the Herodians. And we talked about this a couple weeks ago. The Herodians were liberals. Uh, they were progressive. They brought in, they welcomed in the Roman and the ideas of all the pro Roman ideologies and the theologies and stuff like that. And they're like, hey, bring it, in, bring it on. Because where the Romans were, that's where the money was. Right? And so in this event, on the Sabbath, Jesus is saying to this guy, hey, stand up. Oh, extend your hand. Let's fix your hand right there. And then the Pharisees and the Herodians join parties. How weird would that be to watch? These two completely different ideologies joining parties because Jesus make you upset. And why are they so upset? So because they perform miracles. Now, one of the questions I've always had is, why doesn't Jesus just avoid the Pharisees? Paul literally like goes around the whole Roman Empire just to avoid the Pharisees. And the religious people keep following. If you read the book of Acts, you see this. Jesus, however, he chooses to do his, his ministry in a three-mile radius. In Matthew chapter 11, it says this, that he starts to begin to denounce. He's like, this is the woes of these cities. He denounces these towns, which all of his miracles have been performed in, because they, and then they did not repent. And the three villages that he, taught, that he names is Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum. We're going to throw up a map here. This is how close these cities are to each other. The northern side of the Sea of Galilee, um, each of these villages right around 1,000 people at most. And when we talk about village, there's a uh, city proper with a walled city, and then there's all these, like, they call them daughter cities or daughter areas. 
And so they would be, you know, like one would be growing wheat, one would be growing barley and all that, and they would supply it. If they were ever attacked, then all the people in the daughter areas would come into the walled city and kind of hold off until the attack was done. So right around 1,000 people, right? So Chorazin, we have zero actual recorded events in Jesus' time. Like none of the Gospels that actually show him showing up there. But yet Matthew says he does all these miracles in Chorazin. Chorazin is a food processing center. The, the, the stones around it are uh, black basalt stones, and which is great for grinding wheat and grinding barley and stuff like that um, and processing other things. And so there's zero events in there. To the east is Bethsaida. The challenging thing about Bethsaida, if we go to the next slide, you'll see the territories are broken up. Remember, Herod the Great's, uh, na his nation gets broken up in his kingdom. So to the west, you have where Chorazin and Capernaum is. Herod Antipas is ruling this at the time of Jesus. Herod Philip is ruling Bethsaida. So when Jesus goes to Bethsaida, he's going to a different king, like a governor in a sense, to deal with that. And so we have two miracles that take place in Bethsaida. One of them is the feeding of 5,000 in the plains of Bethsaida. And then the other one is a blind man become, like, finds his sight. So we have two events there, right? So we have zero in Chorazin. We have two recorded miracles in Bethsaida. But then when you get to Capernaum, you have 13 miracles. And this man with the shriveled hand is one of them. And why is Jesus woeing or denouncing these villages? Because they're watching miracles take place, and they're denying God. They're, re they're refusing to repent. Thirteen miracles in the, in the villages of Capernaum. And Capernaum itself is kind of a fascinating little village. One of them being because it's on the intercoastal highway, and so you have all these pro uh, people traveling through. If you want to go to the next map, there you go. Um, so this inter international coastal highway links Africa to Europe and to Asia. Thousands and thousands of people traveling throughout the whole uh, throughout the whole year just to see this area. And so here are these people traveling through, and very foundation of the of the actual village and the and the culture of the village would have been the scriptures. Uh, and it's a rabbinical uh, hot spot. Well, it may be small in number. There's a crucial area. We know there's a centurion there. So a Roman legion of, or sorry, 100 people, and there's a guy who lives there. He's a centurion. He's the commanding officer of them. We find that out in other passages like March, or sorry, Luke chapter 11 and stuff like that. Uh, we find out that there's uh, all these people that just kind of travel and process through this area. And so when it comes down to it, like you have all this cultural hotspot of people who know the scriptures. There's rabbinical, like it's the second, gra second greatest area of rabbis being trained. The first is Jerusalem, and then Capernaum is the second training ground, in a sense. And so you have all these different things going on here, and Jesus is like, man, I cannot believe that you guys have seen all the miracles you've seen, and you still refuse to, to repent your life and, and follow me. Think about that. How many, how many of us have ever seen a miracle and we denied it? You're like, oh, I can justify it away like this, Right? That has to be somehow as a staged issue or stuff like that. Like, um, and and you can, we can easily just justify it away. And this is what God is saying. This is what Jesus is saying. Woe to you guys for doing this. And the Pharisees, they, they literally just plot with the Herodians because they cannot stand the fact that Jesus is doing these miracles. And why would he do these miracles on the Sabbath? Right? 
Like if you, any of the other days you could possibly do. You have six days to do work. Why would you do this one on, on, the, on the Sabbath and all that stuff? And so let's talk about some of the cultural foundations. So you have the, you have the scriptures, and it was the, the foundation of everything in this area. That's their education system. It's how they issue justice. It's how they dealt with legal issues. Uh, you have, that's number one. So when Jesus says, you've heard it said before, and then he says, but I tell you this, they all can track and they all can understand this. And the biblical authors don't have to really explain it, right? How much explanation would we have to do if we wanted to explain Facebook to people around us? Do we have to dive into Facebook? Do we have to dive into how the movies work? You buy your tickets, and then a half hour later, you actually can finally see the movie because of all the you know, previews and stuff like that. And it's going to cost you 45 bucks just to get popcorn and a, and a soda. We don't have to go into all of that right? We just say we went to the movies, and we have all these understanding about this. The biblical authors do the same thing when it comes to reading the scriptures. The problem is we live 2,000 years, 2000 years from that point in a different culture, so we don't pick up on a lot of the cultural issues. So when Mark says, hey, there's a day of the Sabbath in the synagogue, Jesus had him stand up. Well, whoa, there's some cultural issues that we need to kind of unpack here, because only standing took place during certain parts of the thing. And if Jesus is the, the rabbi teaching, then he's assuming some things that we just should probably pick up on. So the second thing that was community, that was driven, that kind of focused in on this was the community driven. Now, when we talk about living community in the Western world, we have no clue what we're talking about. How many of you guys have ever been to a church and it's like, we do life together? What does that mean? Like, are you doing my taxes for me? Great. How about that? You want to show up to my job for me? awesome, great, do, my, do life with me, for me, you know what I mean? Like, that's the kind of idea, but for the, for the people in the Bible times, they had a completely different understanding. They lived in what we call these insulas. Insulas were like extended families uh, units, so like you had one family unit here, and then your aunts and your uncles would be part of this, your grandparents would be part of this, and so you have all these in, built-in babysitters with cousins and stuff like that, and then you just kind of shared responsibilities, and so all of these things are taking place and so you have this idea of built-in understanding of what community really is. Here's the next, uh, it gives you a better, maybe a better understanding of the next picture, another artist rendition of what an insula was. And so you have a shared crops, you have shared gardens and all this kind of stuff, and you kind of have a built-in community. Imagine the arguments that would take place, and then you just show up in the public space and be like, oh, well, we weren't arguing, right? Everyone's hearing everything, Right? How many of us have argued on the way to church? We show up to church and are like, hey, how are you doing? I almost sound great. It's awesome. It's perfect, right? And on the way here, you're like wanting to kill each other. You can't hide any of your stuff in these insulas. And the insulates are the, perp- are the, uh, the, the plural version of this. And so when you have insulates kind of building up around it, that's when you get a community. But imagine all the arguments that you take place and the kids fighting each other and slapping each other, and you can't hide it from your grandparents. You can't hide it from your aunts and uncles. And so all of a sudden now, whatever happens into those insulas is now just kind of common knowledge for everyone. So here we have scripture, and we have community, and when you add those two together, that's when you get a synagogue. It takes 10 men to have a synagogue in a Jewish community. So when you have that, then you have a, a common space for all of that kind of things to take place. And so in the actual synagogue itself, you have this time where... Uh, and and the, the synagogue right here, this is Capernaum Synagogue. 
Capernaum and Chorazin, their common stone is uh, black basalt stone. White limestone is not in this area. Does anyone remember scripture by, based on scripture who actually built the synagogue in Capernaum? It wasn't a Jewish per- person. It was an enemy of a Jewish person. There's a time where Jesus is going to help a synagogue leader, Jairus, and the Roman centurion kind of interrupts him, and he says, hey, by the way, I have a servant who really is sick. Can you help him out? And the people around Jesus were like, hey, this guy built our synagogue. This Roman centurion built their synagogue with white limestone imported in from another area. This was like, we pick up, we don't pick up on these things. We read it, and we're like, oh, that's kind of cool. That's great. But why in the world would a Roman centurion build a synagogue for Jewish people? Unless there's something that he's, we're, picking, we're missing that he's trying to pick up on, like drop for us and say, hey, can you pick these up? And so when you have this, when you see these kind of things, it's kind of intriguing. So these white limestones get brought in to build the synagogue for the Capernaum village <coughs> and all that. And when you went to the actual Sabbath day service, it was a crucial thing to understand when to know to sit down, when to stand up, and all of that. So when the rabbi leader would come up or the, the synagogue leader would come up, he would start reading and everybody stood up. And when he read, you knew you were going to stand up for a long time, anywhere between 15 to 25 minutes. And he would just read it and read it and read it. And then he got to the point where he's like, I think I'm going to sit down now. So then he would sit down and he sat in what was a thing called the Moses seat, the seat of Moses. And that's when he would start giving his sermon. It was a five to seven minute sermon of an understanding of the passage he just read. This is the only seat of Moses that's been found, and it was found in Chorazin. This is a replica. Uh, the actual real one is in the Jerusalem Univer- uh, Museum. And so you would sit down, and you would do this. So if Jesus has the man stand up in the synagogue, what's he assuming here? He's saying, okay, this is going to be scriptural-based. This is all this. Like, we don't know if he's sitting down to teach. We don't know when this whole process is. But he has them stand up in all of that. And so, when it comes down to understanding these kind of things, this is why the Pharisees get really upset. We only stand for the word of God. Why didn't you heal him when he was sitting down? Right? All these kind of things we just kind of miss out on. This is why they start getting a little upset. But think about how much work is it just to do this? How much work is it to say, hey, stand up? The Pharisees, one commentary that I read said that the Pharisees did actually more work by getting hard, like, hard-hearted and stubborn and arguing about it than actually Jesus himself saying, hey, be healed, right? There's like all this thought behind it and all there. So what's motivating the Pharisees to say all these things? What's the question behind the question? They want their good old days back, and they want it back the way they want it, not in the way that Jesus is willing to offer it. And so they're very closed off to the ways of Jesus. And this would make sense if, uh, if Mark was writing to a group of Jewish people. Mark does not want his audience to become more Jewish. Mark wants his audience to become more Christ-like. What Mark is doing here up to this point is he's forcing the reader to think through, how does Jesus interact with the Sabbath? When there's a, when there's a dilemma, when there's a question of what, what's going to happen, what they, what they are forced to try to figure out is, what are we going to do when it comes down to the, the dilemma? How do we actually interact with the Sabbath? 
Mark's original audience is a group of Christians living in, in Rome, almost like behind the enemy lines, right? Like, they are, they are ruled by Rome. They do not follow the Sabbath. They don't care about the Sabbath. And Mark is not saying that we should actually have to follow the Sabbath. What he's actually saying is, how are you, how are you actually going to do this? A third of the Roman Empire were slaves. Do slaves get to decide if they're going to take a Sabbath or not? Not really. So how are we actually going to work through this? And, and when, does it, when does work become work, and when does work become refreshing and restful? How are we actually going to do this? And, and when it comes down to helping other people, does the ruling of the Sabbath become more important than helping other person? What, what Mark is kind of forcing us to do is say, think through, like, okay, when you see somebody down, broken down on the side of the road, what are you going to do about it? If you see somebody who needs help, who cares if it's a Sabbath or not? What we should actually start doing is start working through, okay, do I have margin in my life to help other people? Can I actually be willing to help? Or am I going to sit back and be like, can't help you today. It's the Sabbath. I know you're broken down on the side of the road. It's really dangerous, but I, I can't do this because it's the Sabbath. Followers of Jesus, we cannot just continually fall back and say, can't do this because it violates other things. What we have to start working through is how are we actually going to engage in this world in a way that brings life to Christ, or Christ into, into everyday life. Does that make sense? And so part of this process is learning how to actually be open up to this. So on your, on your seats right here, there's a small little sheet, and I just want to work through this and say, okay, how open are you? Because here's the deal. When it comes to following these rules of stuff like this, there's always going to be some gray areas that we need to work through. And, and finding yourself in these positions or these in scales, and I really hate to kind of do this all the time, but every once in a while, I just want to see where we're at. And, and I'm, I'm not going to judge you where you're at. Like, you can self-assess this, okay? So let me just work through the vertical part. So no awareness at all to the awareness of the true God. Like, you've been seeking God and all that. Uh, and then awareness of Jesus awareness of the gospel. You're starting to understand that there's a gospel, there's a good news, there's salvation, and all of that. And you grasp the implications of the gospel. It's not just about an escape ticket out of hell and all that. And then there's personal problem recognition. You're starting to recognize there's a difference between you and the way of God. There's the thing called sin and all of that. And then there's repentance and there's faith in Christ. You're starting to understand, okay, it's not just about saying the right words but it's a different lifestyle. It's putting my faith and my trust in other things. We talk about this a lot, that you're putting a lot more trust in the chairs that you're sitting in than you sometimes you are with Jesus. Have you ever questioned the engineering of your chairs? But yet you're still sitting in them, right? That's the idea there. So, uh, incorporate, uh, po- uh, sorry, repentance and faith, and then the post-decision evaluation. You're starting to realize, okay, I've made this decision to follow Christ, for me, it was smoking, it was an addiction to porn, it was all these other things that I had to start saying, okay, this does not live up to the ways of Christ. And I started really kind of working through, okay, what do I need to repent of? What is I, the decision that's going to be there? Is Jesus more important than cigarettes? Does that make sense? Those, those kind of things. And then it's an incorporation in the body of Christ, baptism, all that kind of stuff. And then theological growth, now you're starting to understand some of the, de- the depths of the scriptures and stuff like that, and there's behavioral change. And then you're going to start living your life to make disciples. And then kingdom-mindedness. Like you're looking at, like I'm not just showing up to a job, 
I'm looking at, like, how can I do this to advance the kingdom of God? How can I use my money, my time, and my resources? And, I'm, and I'm, let me just be very clear, not advancing Rethink Church, but the kingdom of Jesus. Does that make sense? Like, Jesus, his kingdom is way bigger than the Rethink Church. We just see ourselves as an outpost on this kingdom. And that's the way we look at it. So where do you find yourself in that ranking? Are you aware of this? Are you making disciples? And just take a few moments and just kind of plot yourself where you see yourself in that. If you need a pen, I don't know what to tell you, sorry. I didn't prepare for you. Or crayons. So... So then on the bottom, you have this other range that I just kind of want us to work through as well. Um, when it comes to the actual gospel, how open are you to the good news of Christ? Are you violently opposed? Are you closed off to it? You're just like, no way. My father-in-law would have been, uh, two days before he became a Christian, was violently opposed. He was a functioning alcoholic, and when the pastor who led him to Christ showed up on, the, on his doorstep, he said, if somebody shows up here trying to tell me about Jesus, I'm going to shoot him off my porch. That was his stance on followers of Jesus. And when he saw the car pull in, uh, he had two things against him. Number one, the guy was an old cop who became a pastor. And so he had run-ins with the law sometimes, and he didn't like that. So when he showed up on the, in the driveway, he opened the door to get on the porch and tell him to get off his property. But accidentally, he said, hey, come on in, Dave. Something was going on in this, but he was violently opposed to the ways of Christ. Uh, the next one would be, do you ridicule? Do you make fun of the ways of Christ? Do you see people going to church and you make fun of them? Do you mock them because they put their faith into something else? Are you opposed to it? Are you resistant to it? You see it, but you're like, mm, is it true? Is it really there? You're reluctant or you're hesitant. You're apathetic. You just don't really care. You're like, good for you. Awesome. I'll just keep living my life. You know what I mean? Got my hopes and my dreams in the stock market, and the government's going to fix all my problems, right? Said no one. Anyway, um, <laughs> are you open to the ways of Christ? Are you like, hey, if something were to happen, if God would do this, I'd all of a sudden be like, hey, I'll think about it. Are you curious about the ways of Christ? Are you interested in the ways of Christ? Are you thinking, okay, there's some problems. I'm just trying to figure it out, like, what's going on here? Are you intrigued? Are you looking? For me, when I was 17 years old, I had the idea that I'm going to prove scriptures wrong. And I went on that journey, and here we are. So, <laughs> um, are you longing? Is there something missing in your life that you're like, I need something to be fixed? And so, you search through all these other ways of finding that. Are you seeking Jesus, something to, to fill that void? And are you hungry for the ways of Christ or the gospel? So where, where would you find yourself in that? And then here's what I'm going to ask you to do. Just be honest. This is between you and God. You don't have to turn this in with your name on it. I'm not going to grade this. This is not, I'm that, those days are done for six more weeks at least. So 
I'm not grading anything, but here's the deal. I just want you to think through where you're at. Give yourself an honest assessment. If you were to watch a miracle take place right in front of you, how open would you be to say, that is the move of God right there? Or would you sit back and make fun of it? Would you partner with your most hated enemy to try to find a way to plot to, to end the movement of Christ? That's when Mark says that the Pharisees and the Herodians partnered together. That was shocking to the original audience. That would have been like most liberal party you can think of, partnering with the most right-wing party to figure out in our world to end a third-party option. That's never been done before. But so, <laughs> all right? <clears throat> so th think through where you're at in that. And here's what I want us to understand. When it comes to following Jesus and stepping into a maturing relationship with Jesus, people are always going to become more important than following the law. When, when Jesus gets accused of being un, like unlawful, he's not talking about the Hebrew scriptures. They're talking about the man-made traditions. When it comes to following Jesus, the person that you see in front of you is going to be more important than the man-made traditions. And when, we, when it feels like we don't know what to do, follow the example of Christ. Whether it was sexual immorality, whether it was a Sabbath day, healing and stuff like that, Jesus always leads with grace and then speaks truth. It is never one or the other. Nor is it truth and then grace. It's always grace and then truth. So when you find yourself in this world of not knowing how to interact, A, welcome to the crowd. There's going to be plenty of things in this life that you're like, I'm following Jesus, but I have no clue what I'm doing. You're in good company. The only people so far in the book of Mark that are confident of who Jesus is are the demon-possessed people. Think about that one. Enjoy that, that thought right there, right? Like, <clears throat> if you are confident of who you think Jesus truly is, according to Mark, you may be in some bad company. If you have questions, you may be in great company. Wrestle through that. But here's the beautiful thing. You have Scripture and you, you're not alone. This is what Rethink Church is all about. We're here to say, let's explore Jesus together. Let's go through this maturing relationship together, together. You're not on your own. Some of us may be different paths. Some of us may be different ways of going about this. And we may explore the Sabbath completely different. For me, I like to work with my hands on, this, on my Sabbath. Sometimes it's in the form of video games where I kill commies is what I call it. But, right? Call of Duty is the only thing that I'm good at. And it's not even multiplayer. I just play the campaign mode because it's old school and I can just predict things. So I'm not going to get sniped by someone and just get mad at them. Anyway, so there's that one. So Heather, though, she's all about walking and exercising and all this. And I'm like, mm, good for you. I'm not. Right? So each of us are going to deal with this differently. But the beautiful thing about this is we're not alone on this. So as we explore this, I'm just going to encourage you to think through where you truly are at and that graph, and then, Jesus, what would it look like for me to go to the next step? What would it look like for me to go from curious to seeking, from ridicule to open at least, just progressively, and just be open to that? And if you're completely closed off, just pray that God would open you up anyway. You're here for a reason, right? So let's pray. God, thanks for this day. Thanks for who you are.
and everything you've done for us. Jesus, we know that you're still moving, that miracles still take place. God, help us not to become the people that see all these miracles, but deny your movement and refuse to change our lives. God, would you move in our lives in such a way that we could recognize you for who you are? And help us to put our hope and our trust into you. And when we see you move, God, I pray that we would just surrender our lives to you. That we would glorify you. That we would give you the recognition and you the glory. And we wouldn't be skeptical about it all the time. And Jesus, for us, as we engage in this differently, I pray that you would meet us where we're at. That if we truly are closed off and we truly are have no idea of what we're doing here. We're just here for some reason. God, like you've done with millions and millions of people, will you give eyes to see and ears to hear? We love you, God. Continue to pray this. Amen. Well, we're going to wrap things up. If you need prayer for anything, I'd love to be meet with you back at the Green Wall and pray with you. And don't forget, uh, family or families who are sending your kids to camp will be here shortly after the service. But before we go, I hope you know this to be true, that God loves you and that I love you. And as we follow him, we'll counter the best he has to offer for us. So let's go and be the church. Have a good week. See you next Sunday.